Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, Elise Lunen here. I'm the co-host with GP of the Goop podcast. I'm especially excited for today's guest, Lori Gottlieb. I just finished her book and it made me laugh and cry. I'll tell you in a minute, but first I want to say a quick thanks to the team at Flow who are bringing you today's episode. My unofficial New Year's resolution was to drink more water. Six months later, I'm pretty proud to say that I've been sticking to it, and it's gotten easier since Goop teamed up with Flow. Flow is naturally alkaline spring water. It's packaged in sustainable paperboard packaging with a plant-based cap. It contains more healthy minerals than most bottled water, and it comes in organic flavors like cucumber mint and blackberry hibiscus. The flavors are made without the sugar, artificial sweeteners, calories, and GMOs that are unfortunately found in a lot of other grab-and-go options. To see why people love Flow, head to flowhydration.com and enter code GOOP30 at checkout for 30% off your order or first month of subscription so you can have Flow delivered right to your door. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Lori Gottlieb is a psychotherapist and the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which I loved reading. Lori is a true storyteller. She believes that stories are about connecting with one another and being able to say, this is who I am. Can you understand me? Lori has used the wisdom she's gained as a therapist to influence her writing and also tell about the other side of therapy. What's going on with the therapist? Lori and I talk about all things therapy, the profound experiences Lori's had with her patients and in her own work. We talk about how we all sometimes revel in the struggle and how we can instead confront our pain. 
I learn about what idiot compassion means, the breakthroughs we have when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, and mostly how important it is to feel our feelings. It was a really powerful conversation. We can't see the ways in which we're getting in our own ways, that we are causing ourselves to suffer more than we need to. And therapy can really help you by holding up a mirror to you and helping you to see your reflection in a way that you normally don't. You know, what is your role in this? What is your response to the pain? How can you do something different so that you're not in so much pain? Let's cut to my chat with Lori Gottlieb. So thanks so much for being here and congrats on your book. Thank you. It is all of the components of a great book, I think. It's wise, it's funny, and I cried. It's very sad, but in the right way. Yeah. I mean, I hope that it makes people feel. Yeah. And, and that includes both joy and sadness and the whole gamut. Yeah. And a little bit of frustration I felt for you in the room with John, one of your patients. And I think it's such a fascinating book too, because having participated, you're always wondering <laughs> like what's happening on the other side. So the perspective that you bring both in your own therapy work in your own practice and then in your own therapy is, I thought, I thought it was so fascinating. Yeah. I think so much today we see the, the Facebook, the Instagram version of people's lives. And we know intellectually that mm -hmm. those are curated versions of their lives. But I think what you see in the therapy room is so, such a rich human experience. And I think it makes people feel less isolated to know, oh, I do that, or I'm like that, or other people feel that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think even to know sort of that there is, and I think that maybe there's a, this surge of life coaching or other forms of therapy in part because people think that they're so desperate for that highly interactive conversation. And in my experience with therapy, there's not that much of that. Maybe it's changed. But it's so interesting to hear your perspective as you're engaging with your patients and the way that you're understanding and interpreting what they're saying and sort of codifying it. That there is this sort of vast arsenal of experience on the other side of how we all tend to behave in the same ways, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when people come in, it is interactive, but in a different way. It's not as though I'm going to say, yes, here's what you should do when your mother calls. Right. Right. I think that's right, but I do think that what goes on in the therapy room is interactive, just in a different way. So we don't necessarily give prescriptive advice, like, here's what you should do if your mother calls. Right. But we help you to come up with what you should do. And I think that the interaction in the room is about the, the rich human experience that happens between therapist and patient. You know, I think that people come in and they think, like, I'm hiring this person to do a service for me. And they don't realize that they're going to have this very emotional interaction with that person in the room. Right. And I think it's interesting. And maybe how often, and I know you sort of say, we don't often, we don't know what people should do. And when we tell people what to do, they typically resent us. Like, right. They don't, <laughs> well, you, people don't really want advice. Right. Well, so, you know, there are so many reasons that we don't give advice. One of them is that people will, will plead with you to tell them what to do. And yet, 
then they'll resent you for it because people want agency over their own lives. So if it goes badly, they'll blame you for it. Even if it goes well, then they feel like, ooh, it doesn't really feel like it came from them. It came from something out there. Right. And the other part of it is I have this word taped up next to my files, ultra-crepidarianism, which is the habit of giving advice outside of one's knowledge or competence. And we... I know I might know what I would do in a certain situation, but I don't know what you should do because I'm not living your life. So I can help you figure out what you should do, but that's not necessarily the same thing that I would do in my own life. Right. And I think that that's why the book is so fascinating too, because not only are you working with patients, but you sort of are a sobbing mess in your own therapist's office and sort of the full circle of how we're all trying to figure it out. Right. Well, you know, when you say a sobbing mess. So I think that there are there are these two kind of tropes of therapists in popular media, um, in people's minds or imaginations. One of them is sort of the brick wall, the blank slate, the, the person who has no personality. Nobody wants to go talk to, you know, a, a brick wall, um, a robot. But the other one is that there's the, this trope of the therapist as the train wreck, the hot mess. Mm. And that's not true either. So while I follow these stories of these four patients and I'm the fifth patient and I land in therapy because I'm going through this upheaval in my own life, but I'm not a train wreck. Right. And I think that that's the important distinction. I think that's why people want to see this other side is because, you know, it's very human and it's very relatable. It's not one extreme or the other. Right. No, I think I think you're absolutely right. It is so re- and I think often we we see people who present as though they have it all together, right, or have the answers. And I think the opposite is often true. It's like I always say I'm a synchronized swimmer in my own life that I I don't know it's my nature I can present as very calm and collected and like I know what I'm doing and I'm going in the right direction but it's like really a flurry of activity under the water and like kind of kind of a panic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that that you know it it seems obvious that your therapist would have this, you know, whatever's going on under the surface also. But I think people don't like to think about that aspect of them. Right. I think there's something about, I say in the book that my greatest credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race. Mm-hmm. And I think that people want someone who has that, you know, that they've experienced struggle, they have life experience. My humanity is in fact my greatest tool, but I think people don't want to see that. And I, I don't bring that into the therapy room, but I use it. Every minute in the therapy room. Exactly. There was this one, there are many points that really stuck with me, but this one moment was so resonant. You are talking to Wendell, your therapist, and you are very upset, like for weeks on end about the end of a relationship. And he says to you, essentially, like, there is a difference between pain and suffering, and you seem to be reveling in the suffering so that you don't have to face the pain. I think that's wildly profound, right? And I think we all do that to some extent. Right. Is that what you observe in your own patients, that there's just so much mucking around that we all need to do in the suffering that just, is it is it a way of trapping ourselves there so that we don't have to actually confront what's really in front of us? Right. So what he was saying is that we all experience pain. Nobody, nobody can escape that if you're human. But you don't have to suffer so much. And sometimes 
we are the cause of our own suffering. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times people will come into therapy and they'll say, you know, basically the equivalent of hell is other people. You know, help me change my parent, my partner, my child, my boss, whatever. And sometimes we, because we all have blind spots, we can't see the ways in which we're getting in our own ways, that we are causing ourselves to suffer more than we need to. And therapy can really help you by holding up a mirror to you and helping you to see your reflection in a way that you normally don't. Mm -hmm. You know, what is your role in this? What is your response to the pain? How can you do something different so that you're not in so much pain? Mm. So interesting too, just thinking about breakups and my own life and my friendships. And, you know, we all play that role for our friends. And that's such a, it's like, if we can go deep into that a little bit, it is, I'm just thinking of a good friend who went through a breakup from, for a not very long relationship, but her response to it was so prolonged. And it's funny because going to the whole, people don't want to be told what to do. Anytime that I was too prescriptive, was like a lash of anger. Like she just wanted to sort of like lap, do laps in the pain. Mm -hmm. And it was like, get out of the pool, girl. (laughs) You know, but what is that? You know, I think that sometimes when when people are grieving and it sounds like what she was experiencing was grief, it's not just the present that falls apart, it's the future that falls Mm -hmm. apart. So you think, well, the relationship didn't last very long and, you know, so how significant could it have been? But when she was in that relationship, she had constructed a future for herself that involved this person. Right. And all of a sudden, her entire conception of her future was taken away. And that's what she's grieving. And so when people try to minimize her pain or minimize the impact of what this breakup is doing to her, she's going to feel profoundly misunderstood. Mm-hmm. But I don't even know if she had... But I sometimes think that as women, we feel so shameful about projecting into the future or imagining like, oh, I thought we were going to get married. I know in your instance, you did, you were going to get married, but I think sometimes we are so bad at identifying what it is that we really want because it's scary that I don't even know if she was willing to acknowledge that it was the future that she was mourning. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes as friends, we try to solve or fix And um, when someone really, what they need in that moment is they just need someone to sit with them in their pain. Exactly. They need someone to hear them, to listen to them. You don't have to, you don't have to agree with what she's saying. You just have to be there. You know, Mm -hmm. your presence is what she wants. And, you know, if this goes on for an extremely long time, then as you know, we say on the cover of the book, maybe she should talk to someone (laughs) because that person can help her to understand, you know, how is this serving her? Why is she deciding to spend all of this time in that place? And I think, you know, I talk a lot in the book about why change is so hard and with change comes loss that we have to give up something, whether it's sitting in the pain, which maybe is comforting to us in a certain way. So we don't have to face the uncertainty of Mm -hmm. what might come next. Sometimes change is hard because we're going to have to do something that we don't necessarily want to do. We're going to have to face something that we don't necessarily want to face. Yeah. I thought this part was fascinating. Do you mind if I read you part of your book? Okay. In the context of change, you write, whenever one person in a family system starts to make changes, even if the changes are healthy and positive, it's not unusual for other members in the system to do everything they can to maintain the status quo and bring things back to homeostasis. 
If an addict stops drinking, for instance, family members often unconsciously sabotage that person's recovery because in order to regain homeostasis in the system, somebody has to fill the role of the troubled person. And who wants that role? Sometimes people people even resist positive change in their friends. Why are you going to the gym so much? Why can't you stay late? You don't need more sleep. Why are you working so hard for that promotion? You're no fun anymore. I think that's I underlined it, obviously, multiple times, but that's, that seems to be also, I mean, not only do we, are we scared of change in ourselves, but we're so scared of change in other people. Yeah, because if other people around us change, then we might have to change. So if you are with somebody who's doing something that's unhealthy, you know, they're drinking too much, they're not getting enough sleep, they're not taking care of themselves, and all of a sudden they start to get healthy, then you are going to have to make some changes because now you see yourself reflected in this person and you don't look very good. Mm. And so, you know, if you hang out with people who are unhealthy, you don't have to look at the ways in which you're unhealthy because no one's pointing that out to you. It's not, it's not being reflected back to you. Right. And I guess there's comfort in common misery, right? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think often, and Gwyneth has made this point many times, but whenever you, like when in the context of her divorce, right, when she sort of stated, I'm going to try to do this differently mm-hmm. and got so much blowback. And, you know, she talks about how in that moment, she didn't realize that what people were saying, what people heard, like essentially what she was saying is this is the lowest point in my life. I've failed. My children will suffer and maybe they can suffer less. That what people heard was, I'm going to do this better because you all are doing it wrong and you've done it wrong. And, and that if, she was, people perceived her to be impugning them. Meanwhile, she was saying, like, can we just collectively change the status quo and make this less awful? But it's interesting. It's like culturally we do that. In our family system, we do that. And in, I've, I've experienced that with my friends. It's hard. Like, I judge myself when I don't go to the gym and my friends are getting on with their lives. Right. So how do we change? How do, is it just being aware of it? I think sometimes when you're having a reaction to what somebody else is doing, ask yourself, why am I having this reaction? What does it bring up in me? You know, one of the, one of the things I think that's related to that is envy. So on the one hand, these people will make you look at yourself in a new way when they start to get healthy. Oftentimes, even people we don't know, like say there's somebody that we're envious of, people are so ashamed of envy. And yet envy is really healthy in the sense that it tells you what you want. Mm. I always say to people, follow your envy. It tells you what you want. So don't dwell in the envy. Don't bathe in the envy. But use it as information. Oh, instead of sitting there saying, oh, I wish I had what that person had, or then you start sort of denigrating them, you know, and making yourself feel better, say, what is it that I want? What is this telling me? And how can I get it? What Mm. action can I take toward getting this thing that I want? I love that. And it's so true. I feel like, and do you think that that's unique to women or is that just something that we've all been conditioned to perceive as a negative quality? Like, or do you think women are particularly bad at saying, oh, I can have that too? I've noticed some gender differences in my practice, and one of them is that women are very cautious about feelings that they feel like are unacceptable. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so they have a lot of shame around those feelings. And they think that men are more comfortable with feelings like envy. They're not proud of it, but I think that they feel less shame around it. They're more willing to talk about it. But another gender difference I found is that on the flip side, women are much more willing to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think that men are so conditioned to not show any vulnerability that when men come in, they'll say something like, I've never told anyone this before. And then what they tell me, it feels so mild to me. It's like, really? That's the thing that you've been, (laughs) you know, is like weighing heavily on you? I don't say that in the room, of course. But I really, I really feel for them because I feel like, wow, that's, you know, if, if you can't talk about that, I wonder what else you can't talk about. Mm-hmm. Women, on the other hand, will come in and say, I've never told anybody this before, except for my mother, my sister, and my best friend, right? So right. they've told like a few people, but to them, it feels like they haven't told anyone. And what they tell you tends to be a lot deeper in terms of... Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Vulnerability. Just a second, we're taking a quick break. My job at our InGoop Health Wellness Summits is to man the chat room with Gwyneth. GP typically does the first and last talks of the day, and then I moderate the panels and one-on-one conversations in between. You've probably heard one of those on the podcast, as we've recently been sharing some of our favorites from our last in-group health in LA. It takes a village, maybe a city, to bring those summits to life. And one of our partners in wellness has been the team at Flow, who's joining us for another in-group health the weekend of June 29th in London. My team jokes that Flow's naturally alkaline spring water is the secret sauce that keeps me from passing out on the panel stage after moderating several back-to-back conversations. They also know that I could probably go all day without drinking any water if I didn't have Flo on stage next to me. What's so great about Flo? Here's what I've learned. Flo is naturally alkaline spring water with a pH of 8.1, meaning its minerals come right from the earth. Minerals like magnesium, calcium, bicarbonate, and potassium provide the alkalinity and electrolytes. In other words, you're getting the good stuff. Flow has six organic flavor blends, like my new favorite, blackberry hibiscus. They're made without juice, sugar, sweeteners, calories, preservatives, or GMOs. Again, just the good stuff. The other thing to like about Flow is that they use sustainable paperboard packaging and their cap is plant-based. Flow plaques are 100% recyclable and 68% renewable. 
And they have some good perks. Shipping, for example, is always free. If you head to flowhydration.com and use promo code GOOP30, they'll also give you 30% off your order or first month of subscription to have Flow delivered right to your door. A lot of people at Goop would probably say that the most exciting thing to happen to our office was getting a sweet green outpost set up in our kitchen. Surprise! We really love sweet green here. A bunch of us order salads from sweet green for lunch nearly every day. There's always the make your own option, but I like that sweet green changes their menus of bowls and salads with the seasons too. And they have a good one out now for the beginning of summer. There's a seasonal, a low table with roasted corn and peppers, warm quinoa, more veggies, and spicy sunflower seeds. That one might be my current favorite. But the blueberry summer salad with blackened chicken and a smoky vinaigrette is also solid. I think it's primarily the quality of sweet green salads and the ingredients they use that sets them apart from other fast casual options. But their larger business model is, in many ways, reshaping the way we think about fast food. At this point, Sweetgreen has about 95 restaurants and over 4,000 team members who make seasonal salads and bowls from scratch using sustainably sourced ingredients. To find the closest Sweetgreen to you, visit sweetgreen.com and you can download the Sweetgreen app to make ordering even easier and to rack up some rewards like free greens. And who couldn't use more of those? Okay, let's hear more from Lori Gottlieb. What do, what are the things that show up for women that are, is it besides something like envy? Something where they feel like they've wronged somebody, mm-hmm. where they feel like there's something wrong with them and they can't talk about it. Something about their relationship or their marriage that feels very private to them. They feel very alone in it. They feel like nobody else has experienced that. Mm-hmm. They're the only one. How many things like that emerge in your practice where people assume that they're alone in this feeling or experience, but yet it's mirrored throughout your practice? All the time. Yeah. I think people feel so isolated in their experience. And one thing that's been interesting since the book came out is that so many people are saying, oh, I didn't know that other people were thinking, feeling doing, you know, these Mm -hmm. kinds of things. And I hope that people will start to talk more about them because I think the problem is when nobody's talking about them, nobody knows that other people are experiencing something very similar. Yeah. The other sort of similarities and even thinking about someone like John, who I loved, he, the the tendencies that we all have and, and sort of the way that you guys observe small behaviors like our addiction to our phones or the need to distract himself by eating in your presence or like what, what can we, like from that, is everything that we do telling in some way, like if we all paid more attention to the small things that we were feeling in our bodies and then expressing, like how much would we learn about ourselves? That's so true. The, the problem is that people feel like, if they don't feel their feelings, like a lot of people will say, not in these words, but they'll come in and they'll say in some way, help me not to feel, meaning help me not to feel my sadness, my anxiety, my grief, my guilt, whatever it is. But if you try to suppress a feeling, it actually gets stronger. Mm 
mm-hmm. and it comes out in behaviors. So it might come out in um, a colleague of mine calls the internet the most effective short-term non-prescription painkiller out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it'll come out in like, you know, you're sitting there on the internet going down the rabbit hole when you don't want to be thinking about something, but your feelings are still there. Right. It might come out in John's case in the book, you know, in his abrasiveness, in his way of sort of, you know, thinking that everyone's an idiot and he knows better. That's his way of keeping people at bay because he can't let people get close to him because he might feel something he doesn't want to feel. Mm, yeah. How true is, how closely could you tell like a true story in the book? Is that like 99% someone in your practice or I'm just curious. So I only wrote about people that I was no longer seeing because I didn't feel like I could do therapy with them and then write about them simultaneously. And then I changed all the identifying details, which is really hard in this age of Google. Exactly. I was like, who is this? I right. must know who this is. Right. And, yeah. and, you know, it was really important to me that I did everything I could to protect their privacy. So the stories are all true stories, but all of the details have been changed. Got it. And did did everyone give you their blessing? Yes. Yeah. The other thing that I thought was really interesting, and this was sort of an aside, but I think it's true, and it goes back to the whole conversation around pain and suffering and that addiction, is that when you talk about how patients typically need to seduce their therapist with their misery, that it becomes impossible in some ways to tell your therapist about the good things that are happening because you want them to stay tethered to the fact that (laughs) you're in pain. Does that ever change in your practice? Like, do people get to a point where they're, it's like 95% positive? Oh, yeah. You know, we we focus on the positive from the very first day. When people come in, the very first thing I'm doing is I'm listening not just to what's not working, but I'm trying to, what I like to call scan for strengths. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out, you know, what is working in this person's life. So I want to get a really good picture of both what's not working and what are some of the things that are working so that we can build on those. Mm-hmm. There's this, I think, misconception about therapy where when people hear that I'm a therapist, they'll say, oh, how how do you listen to people complain all day? Mm-hmm. And that's not what therapy is. We're having these, these conversations that include these really beautiful moments, poignant moments, funny moments, heroic moments. People are taking risks and they're going out of their comfort zone and they're making these changes that feel microscopic in the moment, but that lead to significant long-term changes in the quality of their lives. Mm-hmm. So, it's a very positive experience for me to go to work every day. Right. But there are people who will come in, like Charlotte in the in the book, who, you know, she always wants to tell you about the bad things that are happening. But all these good things are happening. She gets this promotion and this this great conversation happens with her mother. And, you know, she doesn't tell me about that. It's almost like she wants to, she wraps misery around her like a blanket. Mm, yeah. Because that's where she's comfortable. Totally. No, it makes a ton of sense. How often when people come, and I'm sure they present with one problem typically or crisis, right? How often is it actually entirely something else? And is it almost always sort of rooted in childhood or early life experiences or not so much? So when people come in and they tell me what's going on in that first session, 
I'm listening to the music under the lyrics. Mm-hmm. They're telling me something, and that's the content. And I want to I want to understand more about what is the underlying pattern or struggle or theme that will become more apparent that has led to whatever the, the lyrics that they're telling me. And there's always various themes that that a person is using to kind of move through the world. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, I, I work a lot with story just because I have a writing background. And sometimes I feel like I'm an editor in that room where they come in with this story and it's a faulty narrative. Like, right. you know, I'm unlovable or I'm not worthy or nothing will ever work out for me. Or in John's case, the opposite, which is I'm better than everybody else. And usually those stories are based in something historic that they don't even realize that they're carrying around from earlier experiences. So how can we help them to update the story to make it more accurate in the present so that they can do something different for the future? Right. I'm just thinking back to about what you said about how our common sort of human instinct is to try to solve each other's problems. So extrapolate, like, extrapolating out from that and like trying to be good friends, right? Because we often play this role for our, you know, the armchair therapist for our friends. How do you listen to the underlying music? Is that dangerous? Like what is our role as friends? Uh, that's, that's a great <laughs> question because in the book I talk about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. And idiot compassion is what we tend to do with our friends, which is just back them up kind of blindly, you know, like, yeah, he was a jerk or you dodged a bullet or, you know, you were right in this situation when you've seen them get into that situation multiple times with multiple people and you kind of know, oh, maybe something, there's something that my friend is doing that Mm -hmm. is creating these situations for her. But we tend to just blindly back them up with idiot compassion. Wise compassion is what therapists do and what I think is trickier to do with your friends, which is to say, you know, I've noticed that you've been in that situation before and what do you think is going on or, you know, but people feel very unsupported by that. They feel judged or criticized or blamed. And so they won't be able to necessarily hear it all the time. Right. But do you still think it's the the appropriate thing to, is our job as friends to sort of like be the mother and be like, you can cry into my arms all you want until it reaches a point where they do need to go and talk to someone? Or is our role to hold them and then nudge them to like go and look under the covers? It depends on your relationship with that person and their, their, what I like to say, their flexibility with the story. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if their, if their version of the story is extremely rigid, they might need to see a therapist to help them become more flexible about, you know, the different roles that they play in that story and the different roles that the other characters in the story play, the other people that they're talking about. One thing that I think helps is to come from a place of curiosity with your friends as opposed to making statements. So, wow, you know, how do you think this happened? Or what do you think happened? And at first they're going to give the version of the story where they were wronged, where they were the victim. And the more you kind of ask questions gently and like, yeah, I know that's really hard because it is hard. You're not, you're not being condescending to them by saying that they actually are experiencing pain. So you can, you can acknowledge that they're experiencing pain and also ask them questions, maybe not at that in that first moment, but maybe a week later, you know, yeah. as they're still talking about it. 
It's interesting in the context of friendship because often you have a much fuller per- picture or perspective on this person's life because you know typically all many of the players. And so that must be so interesting in therapy to have a single perspective what did you call it? The flexibility of the story. Flexibility with the story, right. Flexibility with the story. And how do you even, or does it even matter whether that story is true? Like, how do you tease that out to really even understand what is going on? So I see a number of couples in my practice. And the difference between seeing an individual and seeing a couple is that with a couple, you're you're seeing the two different perspectives right there in the room with you. And it really broadens the story. When you see one person, I know that I'm only getting their perspective. And it's not because, you know, I feel like this person is unreliable. It's that we're all unreliable narrators. We're all telling a story 100% accurately through our perspective. It's mediated through our version of the events. We really feel like we're telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And we are, we're telling our truth. Right. And so the problem is that if you don't have any curiosity about that story, you're not going to move forward in any way. You're not going to grow or change in any way. So I really help people to get curious about themselves and their lives and the stories that they're coming in with so that they might be able to see it a little bit differently. Yeah. No, it's true. I think that one, we are all unreliable. And then I think Two, there's a certain clarity that we have in our minds that we always fail to express. Just thinking about my own experiences in couples therapy, I think I'm an amazing community. Like, this is my job, right? And I ask people questions, and our therapist was observing us, and he was like, you ask terrible questions. Like, you <laughs> ask, like, the like questions with no answers and that are extremely vague. And it was just – it was funny because – I think, of course, that my husband can read my mind and understand my intentions always. And apparently the things that I was actually asking him had no answers. Yeah, people do that a lot. And then they don't understand why that person isn't giving them the information that they want. You know, it's, it's very hard, I think, for people especially when you're very close to someone, like it's your partner, where you can't understand why they don't understand you. Right. Totally. Or, and to go back to that, like the idea of people changing simultaneously, I would imagine in couples, often you, I don't know, I'm curious, do people come to you because they both want something different or do they come to you typically because one person is like, this isn't working for me, I need this relationship to evolve? Like what's ideal? And what Um, typically happens? Both. Sometimes one person in the couple will say, I really want us to go talk to somebody. Sometimes both people say, we really love each other, but we keep getting tripped up in this one area. Let's go talk to somebody. Yeah. You know, all kinds of things. Sometimes a couple is in crisis. Sometimes they're a very healthy couple, but they want help dealing with a certain issue that's going on. Yeah. But I do think that there's something interesting about the ways that often people will say, like, you don't listen to me. You know, Mm. they'll say that to their partner. And I always ask that person, how well do you listen? Mm. 
and it stops them cold because they realize that they've been trying so hard. They're talking and talking and talking to get this person to hear them, but they haven't been listening. In my training, a supervisor once said, you have two ears and one mouth. There's a reason for that ratio. (laughs) (laughs) And that was because, you know, when you're a new therapist, you tend to talk a lot because you're nervous. Oh, interesting. Um, But I use that with couples too. Use those two ears. Yeah. You'll get a lot, you'll, you'll make a lot more progress and you'll be heard so much more if you can hear the other person. Totally. And I think too, using your eyes, you know, we went to see Stan Tatkin, who's amazing and has been on the podcast and he, you know, one of the exercises is that you look into each other's eyes for a very extended amount of time. I don't know if we'd ever done that before. And then you talk about what each other's, what you perceive to be each other's biggest fears and... That was amazing. And you watch, you watch, like they, and he's watching you, but you're also watching each other. And that was so telling. One, like we had, we struggled to do that. It's so, you feel so vulnerable when you do that. Yeah. But also like we couldn't really articulate, we we didn't really get it right, which was also really fascinating. (laughs) But, but to watch and you can like see how people's faces change when you try things on and I don't know, it was, it was incredible training. And that's sort of how he works is this idea of like, here's some tools, go and observe how that lands. Yeah. Those tools are so important, not only for couples, but for individuals. And so we always say that insight is the booby prize of therapy, meaning that you can have all the insight in the world, but if you don't make changes out in the world, the insight is useless. So someone might say, oh, now I understand why, you know, my partner and I keep getting in this argument. Mm -hmm. But if you go home and do exactly the same thing, then what's the point of the insight? Right. So the weird thing is that I think people think that they're coming to therapy to talk for 50 minutes and then leave, and it's as if the therapy doesn't exist during the week. But when you come to therapy, you have to be both vulnerable and accountable. Right. That you have to be vulnerable in the room, but you have to be accountable in in that whatever you learn in that work, that you're putting it into practice in the time between sessions. Yeah. No, I think that's so true. It's also interesting just thinking, too, of sometimes needing a therapist to sort of not, not, not give you a diagnosis, but even point you in the direction of what you need to work on and like what's presenting, what are the, what are the behaviors and what are the patterns so you even know where to start, right? Well, what's interesting is that whatever people do out in the world, they will do with you in the therapy room. So if you are avoidant, you'll be avoidant with your therapist. Mm -hmm. If you distract by, you know, trying to be entertaining or going off on lots of tangents, you probably do that out in the world when people are trying to connect with you. Mm. And so you learn a lot about yourself by having the therapist point out to you what you're doing. And then you can notice it when you're doing it outside and and try to understand, well, you know, how can I, oh, now I notice that I'm doing that when so-and-so is trying to connect with me. I'm going to stop talking now. Right. Right. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. 
But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. That kind of thing. We're going to take a quick break. I pretty much always have a drink in my hand, or at least that's my intention. Usually, it's just water to stay hydrated, coffee to stay awake, or a glass of wine to wind down. I try to avoid plastic bottles and cups as much as I can, so I'm into alternatives that are as easy to pack, transport, and wash, and that it can turn over to a barista for a hot or iced matcha refill. So, I love Corksicle. If you haven't tried it yet, Corksicle is a modern lifestyle brand that makes good-looking drinkware. They use stainless steel, and their design is really thoughtful and fun. Their drinkware comes in all different colors, has flat sides, which are easier to hold, a non-slip silicone bottom, and extra insulation so drinks stay at the temperature they're meant to be at. For example, Corksicle's canteen style is designed to keep drinks cold for up to 25 hours, even in the sun. I've never made it out in the sun that long, but the canteen is perfect for our longest, most tiring, and fun days at the beach with our boys. Corksicle's tumbler comes with a shatterproof, spill-resistant lid and is great for coffee juices or smoothies. I'm all about something that can't spill, especially when I'm running from the house to the car to the office to meetings straight to a dinner that night. And of course, I have to mention Corksicle's stemless wine cup. Whether you're a red, white, or rosé kind of person, it keeps your drink at the right temperature for hours. But again, it's never taken me that long to finish a glass of wine. Corksicle also has a line of insulated coolers that double as handbags, plus more accessories and barware. You can check it all out at Corksicle.com and use code GOOP for 25% off your next order. That's C-O-R-K-C-I-C-L-E dot com. And enter GOOP for 25% off your next order. And now, back to today's conversation. One of the other themes in the book, which this being goop and, you know, one of the things that we look at a lot are autoimmune disorders and how women are completely underserved in the medical community in terms of people knowing what's going on and also being able to acknowledge that what's going on is real. So I loved that part of the book. And when you sort of talk about your own health struggles in reaching a diagnosis and that you brought up because we talk about this a lot, but that there's this ancient concept of like, oh, it's just wandering uterus and that Hippocrates had named sort of this disease hysteria from the Greek word for uterus, which is essentially, you know, women are hysterical. Women are hysterical, right? It's not real. So while I was treating this this young woman, this, she was newly married and she came back from her honeymoon. She had breast cancer and then it ended up later being untreatable cancer. And so she was dying and I was going through this process with her and watching her body deteriorate. And I was going through my own health struggles, but they were very kind of amorphous, Mm -hmm. right? There was this fatigue and there was this, you know, these weird tremors and 
you know, all of these sort of, you know, cognitive things and just, you know, strange body, you know, like rashes on my body and, you know, weird things like that. And I went to my doctor and, and nobody could really figure out what this was. And at one point they sent me to a neurologist and it was this like very macho guy in like, you know, his cowboy boots and he walks in and, and he doesn't even examine me and he just like types into the computer, looks at my chart, sees that I've been to different specialists who have not figured out what I have. And he says, you know, like kind of don't worry your pretty little head. Mm-hmm. You know, you, 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 you must be really tired. You're a mom. You must be really tired. Take some melatonin. And I tried to explain to him, the problem is that I'm sleeping too much, not too little. Right. But he doesn't want to hear it. And, and he just kind of, you know, writes me off as kind of anxious and stressed out, you know, female mother. Right. <laughs> and, and I got a lot of that. And finally, you know, it came to a point where I realized, oh, wow, this is, this is a thing where I have actual lab tests and MRIs that are showing these abnormalities that people don't know what they are, but they, they're there. They're, they're, you know, data that's out there. That's not just my report. And it was really interesting. So did you get a formal diagnosis? We never got a formal diagnosis. We do know that a lot of my symptoms are related to markers of autoimmune disease. So there's something going on with my immune system. And at least now I have doctors who, who don't, you know, prescribe to the wandering uterus uh, <laughs> philosophy where they, they take it very seriously. And, and that really helps, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't help with the symptoms, but it helps that they're still, they're still looking, they're still trying to find out. And, and, you know, when there are certain symptoms, you know, they'll treat them. Right. I've read a lot since then about the way that the medical system often discounts women's concerns as anxiety or stress or depression. And, you know, interestingly, of course, at that time, I was anxious. I had just gone through this breakup. But I had had these physical symptoms before that when I was happily in the relationship. And so I think we start to question ourselves, which is what I did. I thought, well, maybe it is anxiety. Maybe, maybe the doctors, you know, who think that it's in, you know something about like a mental health issue. And there is this connection between our minds and our bodies. But no, in fact, I really did have, you know, and do have these these physical issues. And I think it's really important that, you know, I wanted to include that in the book, even though I, was, I felt very exposed mm-hmm. putting that in the book. But it was really important that, that I talk about that because I, and since then, so many women have said, I've gone through that too. Yeah, it's very common. I think often our felt experience is denigrated or denied and that feeling of like, I know what I'm supposed to feel like and I, I felt that way before and I do not feel that now and then yes. to be dismissed. And it's interesting that you even had data because I feel like that happens to women all the time who don't but then aren't necessarily getting the right tests or, I don't know, it's in, I was having lunch with a friend who's a pediatric neurosurgeon and she had her own she had an aneurysm and she was like now I've had the experience of looking at my own MRI and not being able to see anything beyond my shunt but knowing that I'm experiencing very real symptoms in my body that are not explicable and she was I think it was it's been a very important experience for her as a physician to even be able to say I know I don't know what this is but I know it's real and that's what's so important is even if they can't figure out what it is to acknowledge that 
I believe you. Yeah. I believe that you know your body. Mm-hmm. It's the same reason I think that when women come into therapy, they often apologize for crying. Mm. You know, when they're men don't apologize when they're crying as much. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> women will, you know, they'll start crying and they'll say, I'm sorry. I do that too with my therapist in the beginning where, you know, I feel like, I, you know, somehow I'm, t- I'm upsetting him or taking his time, you know, by sitting there crying. It's my time. It's my therapy session. But I think, you know, I noticed that a lot of women, they'll apologize. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Men often will refrain from crying. I think that's their way of dealing with it, where they want to cry, but they won't. Women will cry, but they'll they'll feel like they need to somehow apologize for feeling the way that they feel. And mm. I think that's related to it. We, have, we, we almost apologize for, I know something's wrong with my body. I'm so sorry to bother you to try to figure this out. Right. But, and I think that's why therapy rooms or any instance to, and again, I know it becomes a question of affordability and I, in an ideal world, obviously mental health care would be available to everyone. But I think as women who typically caretake, right, we take care of a lot of people and and people want things from us, and that's typically the relationship. But to have a place to go where you're paying someone to be present for you and, like, hold the, hold the trash basket and give you tissues is such an important – even that alone, just being like, come and vent, come and vomit, come and cry – and here are 50 minutes that are dedicated to you mm-hmm. where, you know, there aren't going to be any distractions. No one's going to be asking anything of you. Your phone isn't going to be, no one's texting you and saying, you need to be here right now or can you do this? It's really this time where you can sit face to face with another person in that physical space, which we just don't get enough in the yeah. real world. And do you, and I would imagine that it also comes up for you that women feel like, maybe this is just me projecting, but that they should be getting better. There should be immediate progress or that they're, they shouldn't be taking up that time. Like, do you, is there, a, is it like nine months before you really get to the work? Like how, what is, how long do you typically work with patients? Is it a permanent relationship or? There, I think one big misconception about therapy is that you're going to come to therapy, you're going to talk about your childhood ad nauseum, and you're never going to leave, Right. which is just not at all what therapy is. And it varies widely in terms of how long people are there. You know, some people will come in, and after three months, they feel better and they feel ready to, you know, to stop. Other people feel like, you know, they feel better after a certain amount of time, but then there's something else or they want this kind of support. And so they're there a little bit longer. Some people are there for a lot longer. Mm-hmm. It, it really varies widely. And what's the ideal outcome? I love when you talk about I'm going to read to you again from your own book. Sorry. Therapists talk a lot about how the past informs the present, how our histories affect the ways we think, feel, and behave, and how at some point in our lives, we have to let go of the fantasy of creating a better past. If we don't accept the notion that there's no redo, much as we try to get our parents or siblings or partners to fix what happened years ago, our past will keep us stuck. Changing our relationship to the past is a staple of therapy, but we talk far less about how our relationship to the future informs the present too. So... Where, in an ideal world, where do you, where do you leave people in the present, like untethered from those past wrongs? We carry all of that with us. So, you know, I help people to have a better relationship with their past 
so that it doesn't contaminate the present. Mm -hmm. And I think that when people leave, it's not as though all of their pain goes away. It's that it doesn't feel as, uh, it doesn't take up as much emotional real estate and and the pain isn't as sharp. Mm. And they can integrate the pain into the present and into the kind of future that they want to create for themselves. Thanks for listening to my chat with Lori Gottlieb. For more, head to lorigottlieb.com. That's G-O-T-T-L-I-E-B. And make sure to get a copy of her book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Now over to GP for today's AMA. How do you encourage your children to be kind? Asks Val. This is actually a really interesting question because I believe that for most of us, kindness is something that we're born with. So for me, it's more how do you encourage your child to keep opening themselves and being vulnerable and finding the kindness? Or how do you identify the factors in their lives that are closing them down or making them reactive or causing them to behave in a way that's less kind? So if I see a child that is not being kind, I always think that it's not the child. You know, there's something going on in their lives. And I ask myself the same question. If I ever saw one of my children not being kind, which they're, they're pretty kind kids, but even to each other, I think you, that when they're not kind to each other, you know, I think what part of this is regular sibling bullshit and what is possibly wrong in their lives that they're not expressing or lack the vulnerability to really be in touch with. So I think the best way to encourage kindness is to really get your children in a safe enough place where they can express to you what's really going on in their lives and that as parents we don't react and or judge what they're saying or make them feel exposed for having shared their vulnerabilities and that we really hold that space for them to communicate to us because the more that they let things out and are able to process through their emotions, the more they're able to go back to their true baseline, which for all children, I believe, is kindness. Thank you, GP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends. You can always find more on goop.com slash the podcast.